If you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along in, my, in the reading of the scriptures, you can do so. It's Romans uh, chapter 8. You can follow along on the screens or if you have an electronic device, you're probably already there. I'm only going to read this middle section. I, I, I think I said last week that when the great preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, an English uh, pastor, uh, preached on Romans over a, a, a long period of time, uh, somewhere between uh, eight or nine years, he preached uh, and got to this chapter and he said, it's the greatest chapter ever written. And he doesn't mean it's the greatest chapter in Romans or the greatest chapter in the Bible. He meant it was the greatest chapter in all of human literature. But he also means that it's more than merely human literature. And so we're going to see evidence of that again today as we read just these few verses, uh, verses 12 uh, through verse 17 of chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. Let me clear the decks just a little bit by uh, bringing up something that has caused people inside and outside the church a little consternation, a little frustration, a, a little uh, a standoff about one of the verses in our text today. It's in verse 14, and it causes people who are tracking with the point to miss the point. And that's over this issue where it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's verse 14. And it's that issue of being sons of God. Why doesn't Paul say sons and daughters? Why, is, why doesn't he include women? I know that we could give the impression, if we're not careful, that that Christianity is a men's club, or at least a primarily a men's club. A part of it is the language of the scripture, part of it is the ancient world, part of it is not us understanding fully the beauty and the depth and the wonder of what he is saying by using the phrase sons of God. What I mean by that is, is that he's not talking so much of us being sons as he's talking about us being children. And by that, his main point here is that children are heirs and heirs of everything. But in the ancient world, in order to communicate this concept of being inheritance or heirs, women didn't inherit anything in the ancient world. It was illegal for you to write 
your daughters into your wills because land could not transfer from a man to a woman. And so he's actually saying something even more inclusive because he is talking to men and women than what we first hear. We, we could, if we try to import all of our emotion and all of our discussion, all of our argument of the 21st century back into the first century, we would say, man, here's another misogynist male in the scriptures. Rather than recognizing you're talking to probably one of the original feminists. Because he's saying, women, in the ancient world, you can't inherit. But in the kingdom of God, you are co-heirs with Christ. So he's saying something bigger and higher than something that we first read when we read it through the, through the lenses of our 21st century. In fact, women, if, if ever someone says, no, men are heirs and women are not, then say, well, then women are brides of Christ and men are not. <laughs> because it's the same. Just as women and girls are included in the sons of God, men and boys are included in the bride of Christ. And this is Paul's central point. He's using a metaphor of relationship to explain this. God makes us not just no longer enemies, not just friends, but children. And not just children, but heirs. And so this morning, what I would love to do is to pull out some of the rich inheritance. Obviously, Paul is not trying to give us an exhaustive list because I said Christians are inheriting or heirs of everything. Obviously, everything isn't for things. So with that in mind, let's just... First, recognize out of the gate that he says something that is revolutionary besides sons of God's includes women that is also revolutionary in the first century. And that is this idea of God's tenderness towards us. So tender that we are given a description, a name for him that just is so different and so unheard of in the ancient world. And that's found back in verse 15 when he says, for you did not receive the spirit of the slavery to fall back in fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba here is is Aramaic. What I mean by that is it's a common a guttural language that people began to use in place of Hebrew as an ancient language. So, so often Jesus and his followers would have used Aramaic, not Hebrew. And one of the words that was used to describe God that Paul says we can, as children, as adopted children, as heirs, one of the things that we get to inherit is to be able to be familial enough with our God, a tender God, that we can call him Abba, which is what little boys and girls called their loving father. In English, the equivalence would be daddy or papa. Or something similar to that. Not the formal father. 
but something tender and close. And that's part of our inheritance as being the children of God to have this kind of familial, close, tender relation, intimate relationship with our God that we can refer to him in such a close relationship name of daddy. Father is pater, which is Greek for father. for the person who uh, is the head of your family, typically your father. It's this idea that it's so revolutionary. The reason it's a revolution, there's not an ancient religion in history that referred to God as a personal father. Yes, there are religions that you can find that referred to God as the father of creation, father of everything, which in way includes us. And so we would say, yes, God is our father, but we would never refer to him in such a personal tender way of Abba father, because that is to call God my personal father, my personal daddy. There's not an ancient religion, including Hebrew, Jewish, that would allow you to do that. In fact, the way that the Hebrews dealt with this is they wouldn't even say the name for God. And the Hebrew name for God is Yahweh. You can, you can find that in Exodus. Uh, M- Moses is being called to go to, to uh, Egypt to lead the people out of slavery after they've been there for 400 years. And, and he says, okay, you're calling me, but remember, I, I'm not a very good speaker. And God says, okay, well, I'll give you air. And he's a little better at it. And he says, well, but you know, nobody's, nobody's going to listen to me. Who do I say sent me? And, and, and God says, well, tell them I am. Huh? I am? That's what Yahweh means. It means I am that I am. I, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the present, the past, and the future. I am always. That's who sent you. And so the Jews wanted to show reverence to that name. How hallowed, that's what in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name means. It means to treat it differently, to treat it as God is so special. We're going to treat his name special too. And so we're not even going to use his name. So when you're out in public and, and you want to talk about God, you'll use another name like Elohim, God, God Almighty. Or, or you'll just use El God. Or you'll just say Lord, which is Adonai. Which over time became the substitute for Yahweh. So much so that your English translators, and you can see this if you'll look at Exodus, you'll see that when they use Yahweh's name, the translators have translated into the Adonai, which means Lord. And the way that they distinguish Moses being a Lord and God being the Lord is they write it L-O-R-D, all capital. Whenever you see L-O-R-D, capital, in your English translation, the original Hebrew that is there is Yahweh. You see, they they didn't want to say his name because he's that holy. They didn't want to write his name because he's that holy. I wonder sometimes, have we lost a little bit of the reverence of God? I, I know I'm juxtaposing these this idea of him being daddy. And at the same time, we don't even dare say his name. I understand that, but that's the beauty of our God, our father, the consuming fire, the way he's presented in the old Testament. So, so much so that Manoah in judges, when he sees God, he turns to his wife and says, Oh, 
Jig is up. We've seen God. We need to prepare to die. Or, or, or you think about the poor high priest who once a year, it's his job, he gets elected, is to go into the Holy of Holies where God would show up to receive the sacrifices of the sins of the people, that he would, he would prepare himself by taking three baths, putting on three different sets of clothes, and then he would prepare all three sets of sacrifices, one for him and, and, and then uh, ultimately for the people. And he would go in with all this blood to pour on the mercy seat, one of the last things they'd do right before he walked in and they said, okay, just in case God doesn't accept this, let's put a rope around you because we're not allowed in. So we're going to put a rope around you. So if you go in there and you die, we can bring you out. That's how holy God is often presented in the scriptures. That's why this is, we tend to think, oh, no big deal. We're in the 21st century. We can hold two things in, in tandem, in, in tension. God's holiness and God's intimacy, God's tenderness and God consuming fire. But it would have been very difficult in the ancient world. I think it's important for us to see that what we're being communicated here is that this, this consuming fire, this holy being that they wouldn't even say his name or write his name, he's our heavenly father. He's daddy. The only illustration that comes to my mind, and those of you who are old enough to remember, is when John John John, uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, kid would play in the White House in the Oval Office under the desk because the most powerful man on the face of the planet was Daddy. But you know, the President of the United States is like a thimble of power in the face of a consuming fire God that is our daddy. And the way that Paul says, please, let me tell you how this happens for you if you're a Christian. Look at verse 17, verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Are you getting what the spirit's job is? Last week, we spent a lot on the role of the spirit. The spirit's job is to remind us and to convince us that we are the children of God. That God has made us his children through Christ. We get that in verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now that can be lost as we as we hear that, we could, be lo- we could lose it with, with the preposition uh, with. You can also think of in. That could be translated in Christ. And what he's trying to get at here is that we are children of God because and to the degree that we are related to Christ. And not just Christ as a person, but Christ, the work of Christ. Specifically, his life, death, and resurrection. That is, what he's saying is that in Christ, because of what Christ has done and what God has assigned to us because of Christ, what Christ did on earth has been credited to our account. All of his obedience. Check it out sometimes. Later today, you sit down and you read a Matthew and you note how many times it says this. He did this according uh, to the scriptures. He did this 
out of obedience to God. It's repeated over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. The reason is, is because it's leading this evidence of the obedience of Christ that will be assigned to us, credited us as if we had done it. So when the Father looks at us, we are clothed in a, in a righteousness of Christ so that he says, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome into your rest. As if we had done all those things ourselves. But not only his, his obedience is credited to us, but also his death is credited to us. He died on the cross, not for his sin, but for our sin. This is where Paul ties this together in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And so he's trying to communicate to us that not only is his life our life, but his death is our death. His atonement for sin has been applied to our sin that we might be forgiven. That's why this chapter begins with these two bookends. There is there found for now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it ends with there is no separation, neither death nor life nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation, no separation, because he died on the cross in our place. But one more, because he says we are with Christ in glory. And and immediately our mind begins to go to the resurrection and ought to, that Christ's glory is that he didn't stay dead. He defeated death, kicked a hole in death that all might someday come through. Until that day, we are waiting, and we will see this next week, on tippy-toe for our ultimate glorified redemption. The way that John Stott puts it is that we are half saved. Yes, we are fully, we are saved, but we're going to be fully saved. Because at some time, not only is our soul going to be in heaven, but our body will join us. Raised from the dead. And we tend to think of that as, why is he talking about past and present and now he's in the future? He's not just talking about Paul saying this is something that we can grab on now. That when we become believers, when we become followers of Jesus, we're already alive. There is, there, there is a new creation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The old is past, the new has come. It begins now. That's why John will say that Christ came to give you life, but not just life, but life abundantly. Not just in the future, but right now. And the starting point that Paul is trying to get us our minds around is Abba. Daddy's done this for us. Which enables us to receive the next piece of inheritance that doesn't sound like something that we want. And that's his discipline. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Did you hear what our daddy's vision is for his children? That we put to death the flesh. Something that you and I though we can try to do, we're not very good at doing, and ultimately it takes the work of the Spirit in us to do. The death of sin in us. So he just spent a whole chapter 7 talking about the power of sin in us to the point where Paul says, it's not, it's not me, it's sin in me. 
There's a, there's a power at work in me that is causing me. It's, it's, it's what a Paul is trying to say. It's not in me. It's a power in me. To the point where it should hearken back to Genesis when, when, Paul, when God comes to, to Cain right after he kills Abel and he says, sin is crouching at your door. Sin is wanting to destroy the beauty of what God has created. It always has. And so we need the work of the Spirit in us. And sometimes that, that Holy Spirit seems like a gentle breeze because we're struggling and we need comfort. But at other times, the Holy Spirit comes like a strong storm, dismantles and disrupts our lives so that we can be rebuilt into something beautiful. The truth is, if we are his, and this is the promise every parent should hold on to for the way we're children, is that if we are his, he will not allow us to feed the beast and run for him forever. He has sent the spirit to destroy the work of sin and to make us into his children And so even if your child is far from you, and even though they grew up in the church, they're never far from their daddy, not their heavenly one. And he's not going to let them go forever because he is a good father. He's never going to forsake us. He is never going to leave us, even though for a time we have left him. That's why when in the end, the great good news of there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The truth is, not even us. And praise be to God that we can't even separate ourselves. The only illustration I can give you of the work of the Spirit is those of you who who have taken your child to be vaccinated. You know what that's like, mom or dad and whoever's task that joy is, and I mean that facetiously, to take your child into the doctor to to perform uh, some violence on your child, to inject that child with an antivirus so that later they don't get sick. You hold the child and bring the child comfort. That's your job as a parent. Whether you're the dad or the mom, that's what you're supposed to do so the doctor can do what? Perform some violence on the child to stick a needle into their arm. The way you know this is not acceptable is watch the child. The child turns to mom and says, how could you? Looks at dad and says, you Benedict Arnold of the family. I can't, I trusted you and you brought me and this person sticks me with a needle. That's often the way that the discipline of God feels to us. The spirit is comforting us, but at the same time, it will not allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies because we are his. We are his children. Have you ever felt that way about God when you struggle? How could you, Father? The Spirit's job is to remind us of the forgettable. And that is God is for us. We forget that so easily. He wants us to have life. And the only way that can be received is if we also know that we have his love. 
Look at verse 15. We cry what? Abba, Father, but we miss, because of the original language, carazo. It's to cry out. It's what John Stott says. It's the form of a verb that is so strong, that expresses so loudly an emotion. It's something that is felt deep in our hearts. It is something that, that Christians only who have been saved knows that our heavenly father loves us as for us, wants us to be conformed in the image of Christ. And so sometimes he has to perform violence on our souls in order to tear away the work of the power of sin so that something beautiful can be replaced it. But you know, there's an enemy of that cry. Every Christian who cries out to their heavenly father, daddy, I need you. There's an enemy of that. And the enemy of that is a cultural Christianity that says that God is merely an additive, a means to an end to my life. A stranger to to the profound love of God in our lives. For them, Christianity is just cultural. There's nothing personal. God is on the periphery. He's not in the center. It's about smaller, less glorious. He knows nothing of a God who reorients everything in our lives. They have forgotten that everything minus Jesus is nothing. But Jesus plus nothing is everything. There's a poet of the 21st century that really grabs this, this kind of thought, this cultural Christian. His name's Wilbur Reese, and he says, I would like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough of him to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with an immigrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. For some, God is merely for them a transaction, not a relationship. And here's the good news, that not even you and your transactional approach to God can separate you from God. Don't you want a faith that moves you? That's what Paul is offering as children of God is a faith that moves us. The last picture here is of what the church gets the opportunity to be. Not just a a pie in the sky vision, but a reality here and now. Revelation 7 says that the, the church and ultimately God's family is made up of every people, tribe, and nation. And Paul saying that time is now to embrace that. Some have concluded it can't happen. That is, we can never look the way heaven will until we get to heaven. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. said that The most segregated hour in America of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. But I want you to know, Paul does not believe that that kind of diversity is just a heaven thing. 
Y'all remember the Lord's Prayer? You ought to. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Here's the line. On earth as it already is in heaven. If you cannot embrace the loud and messy, diverse family of God, don't pray that prayer. Because that prayer is all about us looking like every people, tribe, and tongue. Now. Listen, this isn't a struggle just for Americans. This isn't even a struggle for the 21st century. It was a struggle way back in the first century. That's why Paul's using Abba, Father. You remember how this letter begins? Grace and peace to you. It's what Bruce Holtzman began our service with. He's taken two salutations, a Greek salutation, grace to you. And he's taken a Hebrew salutation, peace to you. And he's bringing them together. Why? Because he's been transformed. He's a new creation and he had to embrace God's big, loud, diverse family that he would rather cross the street than be a friend of. You realize that the church is to be black and white, red state and blue state, rich and poor, highly educated and not. Don't claim the narrow path of the scriptures if you have a narrow embrace of God's family. It takes no greater miracle to save people different than us than people just like us. Same ransom, same grace. Sometimes we forget that Jesus was a dark-skinned Middle Easterner. We've forgotten that because we have put in our Bibles, especially our children's Bibles, the fourth century Byzantine portrait of Jesus, a white European. What have we done to a young generation of people who have grown up looking at Jesus that looks like me? Or Paul, who's another brown-skinned Middle Easterner writing to whom? white-skinned Europeans about the family of God. We just need to ask, I need to ask, what's my part? Obviously, this is where we're going. And we want heaven, I mean, earth to look like heaven. We want the church to be the window by which people can see the kingdom of God and say, yes, I want that. How do you get that? But what's my part? Do you see how Paul refers to these people in verse 12? These people that look very differently than him, act very differently than him, speak a different language than him. He says, so then, brothers, and let's bring it to the 21st century, brothers and sisters. God disturbed Paul's sensibilities. The Spirit is disturbing our sensibilities. If our sensibilities are never pushed on or never prodded or never moved, then we are everything but Christianity. We're something. We're just not Christianity. We have to ask the question, does this feeling of superiority reside in me? Am I disturbed? 
as a pastor? Do I have the courage to name it? Do I care that 37% of men in prison are black when they only represent 6.1% of America? One out of every three black men spends some time in prison. Do you not know that's going to have some effect on the family? Do I care all over the place? There are relics of a bygone era that people take great offense. White people aren't supposed to feel guilty about past sins. That's not the point. It's the present apathy that we're being awakened because we love the family. God's rich, diverse, and blended family. I love the hymn, This wrong needs to feel off so strong. And I wonder in in me, do I feel the wrong? The way the Bible puts it is that you cannot have a vertical faith in God without a horizontal love for your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. But the second commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor, especially your brothers and sisters. The Spirit is tearing everything down in order to build it something new and beautiful. And the church, EP, is on the leading edge of that if we want to be. The church gets to be the window to the world of what the kingdom values are going to look like. And so we have to ask the question individually and corporately. Do I reflect the values of the kingdom? Do we as a body reflect the values of the kingdom? If not, why not? And if so, how can we demonstrate it more? Do you ask that question? Will you ask that question of yourself? Listen, we, we often get all caught up in our differences with us. And we forget the commonality that we are all the children of God and that he is our daddy and that this mission is not ours, but his. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this this section of Romans 8 that really challenges my heart. I hope it challenges all of our hearts. Obviously, I pray that any part of it that... I shouldn't be part of the challenge of our hearts because it's not true that you might get us to the truth. That we are heirs in Christ and you have given us everything. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that that might be what we celebrate here Sunday after Sunday and that we celebrate this rich, beautiful family that you have given us here And we pray that we'll continue to bring more and more diversity into our church. That we might see your kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.